there are few things in life that you find that are perfect, aren't there? But when you recognise them, it's something special, like the perfect glazed donut, or the perfect amount of seasoning on your fries. It's so rare. (laughs) Or the perfect drying conditions for the washing. The perfect kick after the siren to win the game. I I don't need to mention bacon in every opportunity. (laughs) What about the perfect parking spot? Or the perfectly timed track of music that ends precisely as you arrive at your destination and turn off your car? (laughs) Or the perfect holiday destination on sale when you go to book or the perfect amount of fuel to fill the tank that is both a round number in litres and dollars for the OCD people out there I hear that the struggle can be real which do you choose litres or dollars some people need the round numbers Or those romantically inclined might spend ages researching, planning, and then going on the perfect date. It's hard to find things that are perfect. And speaking of relationships, it's hard to find one of those that is perfect too, because by our very nature, we all are imperfect. So when we come across perfection in any form, it is often the exception rather than the rule. But the good thing is, when we see it, we recognise it. In our passage today, we will see an example of perfection. The love of God perfected in us. But before we get to that, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask right now that you open our hearts and minds to hear from you through your word this morning as we opened 1 John. Lord, we pray through this series, Love Illuminated, that, Lord, you would shine your light brightly into our hearts through your love and that we would be able to reflect that to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles open, today we are continuing our series, Love Illuminated, entering chapter 2 of 1 John. And so today's message is all about perfect love. So if you've got your Bibles there... 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John begins this passage by using a term of endearment for his readers when he says little children. He's not looking down on them like some people might use the term, oh, little children. He's actually using it as a loving sort of fatherly figure saying these people who I love, my little children, my followers in one sense. He's writing to his love family so that they might not sin. It doesn't mean that we may never sin again because sinning is inevitable for sinners, even forgiven sinners. But in every instance of temptation, there is always the possibility that we will not fall. 
And this follows straight on from what I spoke about last week, about walking in light. We basically have spent, uh, have the same point communicated to us today, but in a different way. John is basically saying, stay in the light. Stay in intimate fellowship with Jesus. Continue to pursue being in the light. Now, a lot of us have had many years of practice of doing this. We've ordered our lives in such a way that major problems with sin have been dealt with as we have tried to stay in the light. But here's a truth to consider. It's hard to strive for greater intimacy with God when our lives are moving along without major problems or sin. It's easy to be content with mediocrity in our relationship with God. Nevertheless, God wants us to be holy as He is holy, not just holy enough to muddle through life without making major blunders. You see, only He can give us the desire and the ability to pursue holiness as a goal in life. But what do we do when we stray into darkness? If we stray into darkness, and this passage points us to Jesus. Jesus is our advocate. He is our friend in court, our mediator. He's our defense attorney in one sense. Jesus Christ pleads our cause as sinning Christians before God the Father. And this is far broader than just aiding us after we have sinned. It includes pleading our case as sinners with the Father whenever that becomes necessary, like when Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail in Luke 22. Here, however, the emphasis is on Jesus Christ's help after we have sinned. Since Jesus Christ is righteous, He is the perfect advocate with God. There's a, a, a unique Greek word that John uses here that has been translated as advocate, and the Greek word is parakleton, and it means to be the one who gets called to the side of another to help. And Jesus uses this word four times in the upper room discourse to describe the Holy Spirit as another helper to remain with us like what Jesus was for the disciples. And these are the only times this word appears in the New Testament. And so I guess the Holy Spirit is our helper down here and Christ is our helper up there. John, he strikes a fine balance between the lenient attitude and a harsh attitude towards sin. His focus is on remaining in the light, yet if we do stray into darkness, then we have an advocate who can plead with God on our behalf. Verse 2, John explains more about this role that Jesus plays as our advocate. Jesus Christ did not make satisfaction for our sins as a priest, though he did that. He didn't just do that. He is the satisfaction himself as a sacrifice. He is the propitiation. Now, I'm sure that you all know what that word means. No? No? No one's quite scrubbed up on their propitiation meanings. You didn't do the glossary term before we came along today. Well, basically, it's, he's the appeasement of our sins before holy God. 
That's what it means, propitiation, the appeasement of our sins before holy God. Do you know that the same word translated as propitiation here is the same word to describe the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. That's how the Septuagint translates them both. So you think about the mercy seat, your Old Testament theology, you think about the mercy seat where our sin was dealt with on the Ark of the Covenant, that's the same word that here is Jesus who deals with our sin before holy God. John's clearly making the point of the connections with the Old Testament law and that Jesus is the satisfaction of the law. Jesus' death not only cancelled the penalty of our sins, but it provided cleansing from their defilement and satisfied God's wrath against sin with an acceptable offering. In his death, the Lord Jesus provided salvation that is sufficient through, uh, sufficient for all, though it is only effective for those who trust in him. In other words, Christ's death made eternal life possible for all, but not automatic for all. There is still a part that we play. And John says that he is that, the propitiation, he's that for the whole world. It just doesn't mean the elect, as some might say. People who say that Jesus died only for the elect. You see, John doesn't actually leave room for that. He uses both our, referring to believers, and when he says Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and then he says not only our, but the whole world. So what is he referring to when he says the whole world? He's referring to the whole world. So he's using two terms, one for our as believers, yes, we are the, but also it's extended to the whole world. And we see this through a lot of John's writing and even other places in the New Testament. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus is confident that if he's lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, John 12. You see, you would have to be a very bold person to set limits to the grace and love of God or to the effectiveness of the work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You'd have to be very bold if you wanted to try and limit that because John doesn't give you space for that. True, the love of God is broader than the measures of man's mind and in the New Testament itself there are hints of a salvation whose arms are as wide as the whole world. That's why his sacrifice was the satisfaction because it means that everyone has the opportunity to respond in faith. We see clearly it is that fellowship with God that is possible only when we deal with sin in our lives. That is true of believers as well as unbelievers. Here's an, an illustration to help us understand God's approach to us when it comes to sin. Thomas Edison was working on a crazy contraption called a light bulb. And it took a whole team of men 24 straight hours to put just one globe together. The story goes that when Edison was finished with one light bulb, he gave it to a young boy helper who nervously 
carried it up the stairs. Step by step, he cautiously watched his hands, obviously frightened of dropping such a priceless piece of work. You've probably guessed what happened now, right? He drops it. He drops the bulb at the top of the stairs. 24 hours, a whole team. It took the entire team of men 24 hours more to make another bulb. And finally, tired and ready for a break, Edison, ready to have this bulb carried up the stairs again, gave it to the same young boy who dropped the first one. You see, God continues to give us opportunities to walk in faith rather than failure. Opportunities to reflect the light and love of God by our choice not to sin. To display God's love illuminated in us. God continues to give us opportunities to walk in faith rather than failure. We can deal with sin. Because God trusts us enough to give us the light bulb again and again. No matter the cost that he bears for our sin, and that cost is great, he still gives us the opportunity to walk in faith rather than failure, to walk in fellowship with him. And from his comments on fellowship with God, John moves to a discussion of knowing God. He did so to enable us to appreciate the fundamental importance of knowing God as well as having intimate fellowship with God. You know, these concepts are are kind of synonymous, really. He said similar things about knowing God as he said about having fellowship with God. Increased fellowship with God and increased knowledge of God are inseparable, really. Fellowship with God should always lead to a more perfect knowledge of God. That should be the result. So verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John, he proposes a test for us so that we can measure our experiential knowledge of God, Father and Son. He gives us a way to measure how well we really know him. He said, look at your response to God's revealed will. How well do you keep his commandments? To keep his commandments means to observe or to guard them. That's the opposite of throwing them away. In other words, we are to obey them. J. Allen Blair, in his commentary in 1 John, wrote this, A study was released by the University of Southern California indicating that one-third of the medical patients in this country ignore what doctors tell them to do. The situation is not much different when it comes to the believer doing what God tells him or her to do. As believers, we all know God to some extent. 
However, some know him more intimately and more fully than others do. And I guess, you know, sometimes when people get divorced, I've heard them, them comment about their former spouse that they never really knew them. Now, obviously, they knew each other in one sense, but their knowledge of one another was not very complete or intimate. John's point was that our personal experiential knowledge of God will affect the way that we live. And the way that we live, disobediently or obediently, will reveal how well we really know Him. See, what John is talking about is, is knowing God intimately as an experiential knowledge, not a saving knowledge. When we know God experientially, obedience flows. And that obedience is a recognition of the way of life that God expects of us as believers. Someone summed it up like this. In other words, to know God is not a matter of correct thought processes, but of a genuine spiritual relationship. The knowledge of God and fellowship with Him are complementary aspects of Christian experience. Knowing Jesus leads to obedience. So if a person says that they know God intimately but is not obedient to the revealed will of God, then they are a liar. They do not know God intimately and do not have a close relationship with God. Furthermore, God's truth does not have a controlling influence over their life. That is pretty stark. It is harsh. The language that John used in this passage is harsh and abrupt. And it might be a bit jarring to us as we're, we are used to less antagonistic language, right? Calling someone a liar in our culture is a strong accusation. And it was for John too. I think he may simply be stating a fact in God's sight as a pastoral messenger to God's people who needed a wake-up call. And so it would be right for us to ask ourselves, do we need that wake-up call? Do we keep the commands of Christ do we follow in obedience what God has revealed in His Word is His will? Or are we lying to ourselves? And if we are lying to ourselves, the implication that John draws is that the truth is not in us. Intimacy is not there. On the other hand, Christians who are careful to observe all of God's will, not just His commandments, well, that sort of gives evidence that they've come to understand and appreciate God's love for them. God's love is perfected in us in the sense that we have perceived it, have responded to it, and it is having its intended effect on our behaviour. Our love for God is in view here rather than His love for us. See, loving God is parallel to knowing God. When we move beyond simply obeying God and a desire to please Him, God's love in us has reached its desired effect. It has truly been perfected. And that's what I mean when I talk about perfect love. Moving beyond simply obeying God to a desire to please God. 
That's the perfecting work of God's love permeating through every fiber in us. When our desires move from simply obeying God to a desire to please Him. That's the perfection of love to God. And it really matters to John. He talks about love 46 times in this book alone. Hopefully over the coming weeks, you too will grasp the depth of love illuminated. And it's important to note here that love for Christ and obedience to His Word are not a test of saving faith. They are tests of genuine, heartfelt discipleship to Jesus. John also makes the point that a believer who is abiding in God will obey God just as Jesus Christ abided in God or abode in God, I guess is probably technically correct, and gave evidence of that by obeying his Father. But in fact, it's, it's more than obedience. It's to also walk in the same manner as he walked, to follow the example of Jesus. And so the encouragement is to walk in fellowship with Jesus. You see, it's hard to claim that we abide in Christ unless we behave like him. But it's not something we can accomplish in our own strength. It is supernatural. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. He is a helper to assist us as we walk in fellowship with Jesus. We need to allow Christ to manifest his life through us. At a fundraising dinner for a school that serves learning disabled children, the father of one of the students delivered a speech that would never be forgotten by all who attended. After extolling and encouraging the school and its dedicated staff, he offered a question. We're not interfered with by outside influences. Eventually, everything nature does is done with perfection. We'd probably have a different spin on that. But he said, Yet my son Shay cannot learn things as other children do. He cannot understand things as other children do. Where is the natural order of things in my son? The audience was stilled by the query and the father continued. He said, I believe that when a child like Shay comes into the world, an opportunity to realize true human nature presents itself and it comes in the way other people treat that child. Then he told the following story. Shay and his father had walked past a park where some boys that Shay knew were playing baseball. And Shay asked, do you think they'll let me play? So Shay's father knew that most of the boys would not want someone like Shay on their team. But the father also understood that if his son were allowed to play, it would give him a much-needed sense of belonging. So Shay's father approached one of the boys on the field and asked if Shay could play. The boy looked around for guidance and getting none, he took matters into his own hand and said, well, we're losing by six runs and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team and we'll try to put him into bat in the ninth inning. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shay's team scored a few runs but was still behind by three. 
In the top of the ninth inning, Shea put on a glove and played in the outfield. Even though no hits came his way, he was obviously ecstatic just to be in the game and on the field, grinning from ear to ear as his father waved him from the stands. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shea's team scored again, and now with two outs and the bases loaded, the potential winning run was on base, and Shea was scheduled to bat next. At this juncture, do they let Shea bat and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shea was given the bat. Everyone knew that a hit was all but impossible because Shea didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, much less connect with the ball. However, as Shea stepped up to the plate, the pitcher moved in a few steps to lob the ball in softly to Shea, so at least he might be able to make contact. The first pitch came and Shea swung clumsily and missed. The pitcher again took a few steps forward to toss the ball softly towards Shea. And as the pitch came in, Shea swung at the ball and hit a slow ground ball right back to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the soft ball, could have easily thrown the ball to the first baseman and Shea would have been out and that would have been the end of the game. Instead, the pitcher took the ball and he turned and threw the ball in a high arc to the right field far beyond the reach of the first baseman. And everyone started yelling, Shay, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shay ever made it to first base. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled, and everyone yelled, run to second, run to second. By the time Shay rounded the first base, the right fielder had the ball, and he could have thrown it to the second baseman for the tag, but he understood the pitcher's intentions and intentionally threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. Shea ran towards second as the runners ahead of him were deliriously circled the bases around towards home. Shea reached second base. The opposing shortstop ran to him, turned him in the direction of third base and said, run to third. And so Shea ran to the third and the boys from both teams were screaming, run home, run home. And he ran home. He stepped on the plate and he was cheered as the hero who hit the grand slam and won the game for his team. That day, said the father softly with tears rolling down his face, the boys from both teams helped bring a piece of true love into this world. That's what happens when love is complete in us. When we walk in the same way that Jesus walked, true love enters the world through us. Our true nature 
created in the image of God, is then seen by all. Our love for God and our desire to please Him is reflected in the interactions that we have with others. It breaks out as we walk in fellowship with Jesus. That's love perfected. So what can you do in your life this week that reflects your fellowship with God, your perfected love, your desire to please God? I have three suggestions. Number one, forgive someone. If you are harboring any unforgiveness towards someone, that will stop you from experiencing deep fellowship with God. I know this from experience. Whoever has hurt you, whatever they have done, give it over to God, submit that to Him in prayer, and move to a place of forgiveness towards them in your heart. Jesus said, forgive as I have forgiven you. Secondly, serve someone. Bring hope to someone in a practical way by meeting their physical needs. It might be offering to babysit, might be an offer of friendship, it might be grabbing one of the vouchers that we've got and taking someone out for a coffee. We've still got several for you to do that with. And it might be dropping off a meal. Serve someone by meeting a need, bringing them a little bit of hope in a practical way. And I guess the most clear one, if we're talking about love perfected, is to love someone. You know, the most loving thing that you can do for someone is share with them the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that will connect with them. Part of our fellowship with God includes sharing with others about Him, as that is one of His commands. But how else can you love someone this week? Who can you include in your life and share God's love with? Forgive someone, serve someone, love someone. Walk in fellowship with Jesus in perfected love. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we do have the opportunity to be in fellowship with you. Lord, you have given us the amazing gift of our salvation through your work on the cross. That, Lord, you have extended that to the whole world because great is your love for all of your creation. But, Lord, it's only as we respond in faith to you does that apply personally. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us take that message of hope that we have to others as a demonstration of your love that's been perfected in us as we bring some of your love to others lord i pray that this week we might take the opportunity as your love and as we walk in fellowship with you that we might take the opportunity to forgive someone as an expression of your love perfected in us that we might serve someone meeting a practical need and that lord we would express our love for people 
that is reflected because, Lord, you first loved us. So may your perfected work in us continue as we remain and walk in the light, as we abide in you. And may your perfected love in us as our desires change from a desire of obedience to a desire to please you. Lord, may that be one where your love just reflects your glory in and through us, we pray. Amen.